Howdy, y'all, and welcome to an extremely special edition of the Cyber Ranch Podcast. This is part two of two of a live fireside chat recorded at the RSA conference just a few short weeks ago. I joined forces with Attack IQ and Sempris, and we took over a big chunk of the lobby at the W across from the Moscone Center. I'm an advisor at both companies, so it just made sense to join forces to record a cyber campfire. We gave away cowboy and cowgirl hats, and more importantly, we recorded some fireside chats in front of an actual fire. I got to talk to a fantastic series of guests, 34 folks in total, and I'm releasing two shows here. This is part two of two of the best of the best of those conversations. Uh, for those who don't know, Attack IQ offers a new fully managed breach and attack simulation service. They are also the premier provider of MITRE attack-based security controls validation. Sempris, for those who don't know, provides the industry's most comprehensive Active Directory and Azure AD cyber resilience platform, supported by specialized AD incident response expertise. Both companies funded this entire operation, and I could not be more grateful, so let's get on with the show itself. Welcome to the Cyber Ranch Podcast, recorded under the big blue skies of Texas, where one CISO explores the cybersecurity landscape with the help of friends and experts. Here's your host, Alan Alford, President and CISO at Alan Alford Consulting. Now, the first question I asked folks was all about vendor relationships. What's going right? What's going wrong? What do folks need to be doing? How can they improve the relationships with the vendors they do business with? Pete Lubin, head of cybersecurity and IT over at Dimensional Fund Advisors, is all about strong vendor relationships. The, the, the whole relationship between CISO and vendor where you, or, or anybody in vendor where it used to just be you cut a check, you get a service, and that service better work. Like, what, do you, what are you doing to make that product better in the long term? How are you going to benefit unless you are contributing to that thing? And I think that's how we do it. Rob Wood, CISO at the Centers for Medicare and Medicaid Services, added this about the vendor relationships. I think everyone needs to, everyone needs to listen a little bit more and just, and just kind of humble themselves because the, the practitioners can, can absolutely learn from the vendors. You know, they're, they're in it, doing the thing. Uh, like the, on the vendor side, I was at um, SourceClear. It was a software composition analysis company. And the amount of like deep, deep knowledge that I got from doing that work, I was leading research there and doing uh, internal cybersecurity. And like that, that knowledge has carried, you know, carried itself with me and, and proven to be very valuable, you know, including my time at Sigital. And um, there, so everyone needs to just like kind of humble themselves and, and like lean in and, and listen more. And, and and just don't be a jerk. Like, you know, there's a lot of practitioners who, you know, kind of hate on the vendor community, don't want to talk to them, don't want to give them the time of day. And and I, and I tell this story somewhat jokingly, but on the, on the vendor side, like I spoke at an event recently in D.C., and I had somebody, like, follow me to the metro station afterwards, wanting to, like, keep getting time with me. And it's like both sides can go too far. Now, that's the word from a CISO who is also a former vendor. I talked to a person who's a current vendor. Elizabeth Martinez, account exec over at ThreatLocker, pointed out that the vendor relationship is not just about the relationship, but it's also about an assessment of your environment. I would say just be open, you know, try as many tools as you can and like really evaluate your stack over and over. Like don't, even if you feel safe with whatever stack you've got, it's always worth it to like be to check out something new. The next question I asked a ton of my guests 
was tired topics. What is the tired topic you're tired of hearing about in your particular vertical in cybersecurity? And the first person to talk with me about this subject was Adrian Peters, CISO over at Vista Equity Partners, and he had this to add. I think the one that probably generally gets the wind out of my sails is GRC. Well, I think, I think there's a couple of challenges. We, uh, we generally like to talk about the notion that we need to have quality governance. We need to understand what are our regularity, uh, regulatory obligations that we need to meet. I think there are very few platforms that actually have do a good job at addressing any one of those specific needs well. The first thing I ask when somebody says they do GRC, I'm like, what do you actually do? Is this tech GRC? Is this cyber GRC? Like, yeah, I, f- I feel like we're uh, I feel like we're going back to the point where we're going to have to pick specialized governance stacks in order to address specific risk needs, just because the management of the archers of the world is just not sustainable. David Cross, SVP and CISO over at Oracle SaaS Cloud, added this about tired topics. Well, there's the element is uh, kind of walking the expo floor a little bit earlier today is, you know, everything is that the NSA is evil and so we can't, you know, trust the NSA. So that kind of gets a little bit old. And, and, and I think the reality is we do have to trust our governments to a degree. But, uh, you know, uh, I, I think let's focus on what's doing right for, for people versus fighting governments. Audra Streetman, security strategist over at Splunk, added this about tired topics. It's not that we need to quit talking about it, but I wish it wasn't something to talk about. And that would be gender parity. I I really, I I do wish, you know, it's 2023, and I wish at this point we would see, uh, you know, more balance between hiring more women in cybersecurity. So that's something, not that we shouldn't talk about it, because it's important, but I wish we didn't have to talk about it. Stephanie Dodori, Senior Manager of Information Security and Technology Risk Management over at the Capital Group, shared her thoughts as well. I wish... I wish, I wish I didn't have to tell you this, but I do because it's still happening. So I started going to conferences back in, I don't know, early 2000s, right? And you know what was the most commonly said thing was perimeter security is dead. (laughs) Guess what I continue to hear? So, um... I mean, I joke about it, but I, I do want to, like, throw, like, a pencil or something at somebody when they say that. I'm like, wake up. We've been hearing that for a long time. And while I think that it takes a long time for the industry to understand and, and, and get it, in this state, like, everyone has heard that more times than they can probably count. So don't ever say that. If you're, if you're giving a speech, don't, don't say that term. Royce Marcos, an established CISO and a well-known figure here in the Dallas-Fort Worth CISO community, uh, he went with a technical answer on this one. Yeah, so ransomware, I'm, I'm hearing a lot, and it's important. Uh, there's keys to solving it, but it's been around for a long time. And it's just the application of, of how you do that uh, using best of breed technology. So uh, that's one that's kind of lingering. Michael Calderon, CISO over at the Yagio Group, had this to offer. Just thinking about the, the, the journey itself, you know, we're always working to create an environment where people have what they need when they need it, and don't have access to information that that may be more sensitive than required, the term zero trust feels backwards to me. It's really about creating trust in our users. We can trust that Alan is who he says he is when he logs in because we understand all of these bits and pieces that float around him. Yeah, and if we're in the business of selling trust both within and beyond the organization, I kind of feel like talking about zero trust is a step in the wrong direction because we've got to be talking about building trust at all levels. 
Bob Shooter, CISO over at Ashland, when I asked him, what is our most tired topic, had this to say. Identity. <laughs> you know, but, but that's the reality of it is, is there's a lot of the theory and a lot of the thought out there that we've had for the last 10 years. The technology keeps on changing. I think we're at a spot now where the technology is actually keeping up with some of our original thoughts and original ideas of how to do some of these things. But if you, if you keep on talking about you know, kind of the old adage of you know, uh, no one was ever fired for bringing in IBM, we had a tendency back then to hold on to solutions for a long, long, long time. And the reality is, you know, I don't think as much value is living there. Right? So even look at firewalls. How much traffic do you really put through all your firewalls these days? We don't have a good structure right now for reducing down that cost with the value reduction that we're seeing. Right? So I, I think you know, whether you are looking at it, whether you're, you're you're hard into you know, every two years taking a hard approach to cutting your, your technology, you really need to take a look at it and get yourself ready for that future world. Andres Andreu, CISO over at 2U, pulled no punches on his answer. The buzzword hell and the FUD that still exists is just kind of disgusting. Paul Love, CISO and privacy officer over at Co-op Solutions, had the final answer to this question. I think we still need to work on ensuring that diversity, right? So for instance, on my company, I'm, I'm one of the co-chairs of our DE&I council, right? As the security person, right? Because I wanted, I wanted to make sure that I understood how to lead people, how to bring people into the org that are diverse. And, and, and you know, that just makes a lot of sense. So continuing this outreach of you know, trying to get the, the younger people in, or even older people who are trying to do career changes, like getting that thought process in, it's so amazing to have cool conversations. Like, for instance, you may come up with a policy that says, okay, we're going to require BYOD. And then you get somebody in who has a different life, you know, what they've dealt with, and they may say, well, what if a person doesn't have a, a device? What if they can't afford it? It's like, oh, my gosh, right? We, we hadn't even thought of that, right? So, you know, that whole different kind of conversation, that's really exciting to me. And I love learning. I'm in continuous learning mode. So hearing people and, and hearing different perspectives is really important. So, you know, I, we're, we're working on it, but I hope nobody thinks, oh, we're done. Okay, we can move on to the next thing. No, you got to keep bringing the everybody that you can in different perspectives. Now, the next question I asked my guest was pretty straightforward, but not an easy one to answer. How do you affect the top and bottom line of your organization? Pete Lubin chimed in again. You know, we spend a lot of time, you know, on business cases and paperwork and so on and so forth to try and get, you know, the funding to do things that we think we need to do. I mean, at the end of the day, like, you know, all the, all the industry is going to tell you is, you know, the cybersecurity program is intended to affect the bottom line by preventing, uh, uh, you know, bad things from happening that have uh, uh, financial impacts, especially in a very, very highly regulated industry. You know, I, I tell my I tell my boss and, and my execs that through through the lens of risk, you, you know, uh, incurring risk is going to cost money, especially through the lens of regulators. And so, everything that I can do to avoid regular regulatory impact, I mean, that is essentially savings, right? But it be, it be obviously becomes it becomes a conversation about unrealized and realized profit and loss, right? And you're talking to uh, uh, you know Nobel Prize winning economists about you know, you know theoretical risk and and so on and so forth. So. So ultimately, you know, on a good day, I think that's what we're doing is we're essentially buying down risk to prevent financial impact. And that's how we affect the bottom line. Brian Markham, CISO over at EAB, offered this. So I think in any business, it's about trust, right? So we sell stuff uh, to our customers and, uh, you know, all customers want to know if they can trust us, specifically the security teams, but, you know, the, the buyers too. 
And so we just try and be there for the customer. When I went from being not at a vendor to a vendor, I told myself that I'm going to be that CISO that shows up for the phone calls. I'm not going to hide. I want to be out because you do great work. You, you pour your heart into it. You want to tell people about it, right? You're never going to be perfect. But so I think if you tell that story about trust, you work really hard. Um, you know, I feel like you will get a reputation over time as a, as a company and a security team that is worth trusting. Ken Foster, VP of ITGRC over at FleetCore, added this. You know, I think the big thing is, is when you're looking, when, you, when you're having those conversations with those external partners and you're, you're selling your strategy, you're selling your program, I think the one thing is, is A, transparent communication both ways and make sure you're communicating with everybody involved, right? Uh, I think that's a, it has to be a given now. Um, you have to work very hard to make sure that you understand the business and that you, from the security side, understand what your company does, understand how they make revenue, understand how you're going to impact that and explain that. And then the other thing, I think you need to be able to explain your program in language they understand, right? So you need to be able to tell them what the ROI and the TCO of your cyber program is. You need to be able to talk in those financial terms. And if you're doing it that way today, yeah, you're probably not long for this world, uh, you know. But So I think that's the big thing is just having those conversations and making sure they fully understand that you are there to make them resilient, right, and help them stay operational, help the revenue stream keep flowing, and you've identified the risk, you've identified the way to measure it, and, you're, and you're, you're putting a program in that isn't, hey, I found a new shiny toy and I'd like to bring it in, and then I don't have to hear the question of, what did security just do to me today? Merritt Bear with the Office of the CISO over at AWS offered this idea. I think it's really important that folks, you know, disregard this old mentality of security as a cost center. Um, you know, I, I do think that security is part of the bottom line proposition of whatever you are delivering. If you are, you know, a hospitality chain or if you are a car company, um, ultimately what your end user customers care about includes security. But it also is something that is core to how you deliver. So I think as we think about, you know, these innovative cycles, becoming agile and micro services and micro segmentation and the kinds of ways that we're building, we call them two pizza teams at Amazon because the idea is that, um, you know, they're deliberately kind of siloed and working against these tight uh, agile development um, deadlines. Um, that as you do that, you're building security in from the get-go, right? You're not bolting it on at the end, but also you're able to do that in a more um, elegant way because you're using things like, you know, vending environments, ephemerality um, and immutability, the ability to kind of get the um, tools right so that those paved roads for the secure thing to do being the easy thing to do, which is hard. Um, but if you build it in, you know, and you can do this with infrastructure as code. So you have your CloudFormation template or Terraform or whatever. You're able to then have very few snowflake environments, very few exceptions. And that makes everyone happy. Michael Calderon had a good answer to this one as well. I know we're being recorded, but I will deny this if anybody ever asks me about it. We're salespeople. It's part of the job. So, you know, how we help our business close deals and build trust in our company and how we're going to be able to deliver what we promise to when, we, when our customers need it, that, that's the job. And if we don't have somebody focused on that from the security perspective, 
our customers will end up finding other organizations to get them what they need. Gary Hayslip, the CISO over at SoftBank Investment Advisors, and a dear friend, I might add, spoke on this topic as well. I'm very fond of saying that I'm not Mr. No, I'm Mr. Maybe. You know, because it's, it's all about risk. You know, I am... Um, when I report to the board, when I discuss with our executives, I explain to them, I'm a business executive that just manages risk through technology and process and, you know, and procedures and, and controls, you know. Um, and so I, you know, what I basically do is, you know, I, I do my assessment. I lay out what risk exposure we have. I lay out, you know, uh, what gaps we have. And then I lay out impact. And I tie the impact to specific business initiatives, specific revenue, you know, so they can go ahead and see that, you know, there is, you know, when you make technology decisions, there's always a flip side to it. And we need to go ahead and address it. And so my job is to kind of lay those out there so we can see them. And then, you know, what I put out there is that, hey, as a team, let's prioritize this. Which ones of these should I be focused on for the business? You know, and, um, and, and that's what we do. And, we, then we, and then we continually go ahead and reassess. And, uh, and then I report on it. And then when I report on it, it isn't so much that, you know, hey, we found this port open or this IP address. No, it, it's not that. It's, it's more of a, um, you know, these things we're dealing with um, segregation of duties. These things we're dealing with, you know, account access, you know. Um, and so it's, you know, the description of the gaps actually aligns to uh, the various audits that we do. And so that way they understand that, you know, hey, these are the things that we found. They align up to the audits that we're doing with JSOX or with FCA or whoever we're dealing with, you know. And so and that's what I'm saying. So they, they can see, okay, this is why you exist. This is what you're doing. And then, um, you know, from, a, uh, from an impact standpoint to the business, as you said, to the bottom line, you know, my thing is that I'm not going to make revenue, but I can go ahead and make it, maybe I make it easier for you. Or with the controls we put in place, you can actually use new tools like chat GPT, you know, you know what I'm saying? You know, and so I look at it as, you know, how do I go ahead and put, you know, tools and stuff in place so you can innovate, you know, but be able to innovate securely, you know, and, uh, and it's, and the big thing I go ahead and I tell everybody, and you and I have talked about this numerous times is that it's a continuous process. You know, you're not done. Just when you think you figured something out, the business wants to try something new or they pivot and they're going into a different market. Brian Green, CISO for the Americas over at Zscaler, offered this take on it. You know, critically important, I think this is a, a great question considering the, the macroeconomic conditions that are happening across the globe and so on. So, yeah, very timely. Um, but I think in terms of how CISOs can impact the bottom and top line, are, um, one is just to, to really um, simplify their, their security stacks and, you know, doing things like rationalizing controls and, and finding opportunities to improve efficiencies, I think, are critically important. And... Um, you know, from my days as a practitioner, I would say that, you know, a lot of organizations have these massive portfolios of tools, you know, they have these, you know, firewalls and sandboxing capabilities and intrusion detection, prevention and endpoint protections and all of these things. But when you click a, you know, a couple of layers deep into that, what you often find is that these tools and capabilities are often extremely underutilized. So looking for opportunities to really build more of a holistic suite of capabilities, things that interoperate well together, things that really you're able to share telemetry and share data across these platforms so that you can really holistically understand what your risk posture looks like and really understand really the, the capability and the maturity of the controls you have in your program. Andres Andreu chimed in on this one as well. Link to the numbers. 
So I, I always look. No, let's be pragmatic here. Nobody cares about risk. They care about what's going to happen if the risk is actualized, right? And so what I try to do is just paint a realistic picture of saying, listen, risk in this area does exist, and the potential financial impact is X, right? And granted, you know, there's there's a little gray area in figuring out X, but as, so long as you can make X a realistic number. That's when the business people start to listen. He goes on to add this. I say solidify trust in the brand because that goes a long way. Once I think once confidence in a, in a company's brand is lost, it is I consider it to be irreparable damage. And so I um, I really find that that is that is absolutely key. And the other thing is to protect the company from silly mishaps, right? Like, if the FTC ends up fining you for lack of data controls, well, hell, that's negligence on your part. You should have been more proactive. Paul Love returns with the last answer to this question. Contextualization, right? So, um, you know, it's easy, to, um, it's easy to secure a company out of business, right? It doesn't take a lot of effort. Just shut everything down, right? So making sure that you support the top line and the bottom line is making sure that you understand what's, again, what's the risk that we're willing to take and then align what you spend to that because, and, and then also the velocity that you spend, right? Because you can, if putting, and this I didn't discover till later in my careers, trying to put too much change in at once will actually make your program go backwards. So for instance, I tried to, um, put we we had this requirement that all doors would have lock would be locking in and going out. Well, and this was about 20 years ago, right? That you know we had it locking, you know, coming in. But then I said, okay, let's make sure that we lock it going out. If the badge, if you didn't badge in, wow! I had a group of people circling me and the foyer saying, you can't do this. You're restricting our. I mean, it was like it was a, a pivotal moment for me as a CISO because it's like, wait a minute. I went too fast, and I didn't realize. And then it took me significantly longer to put that rule in place because I had to go resell it. So, you know, a lot of a lot of trial and error that I've learned. As you folks have figured out by now, it's kind of cool to ask the same question to a lot of different practitioners and get a unique set of answers back. It really gives you a broad understanding of the nuances of the question. But I also had some very unique one-off interviews with a bunch of folks who have different roles in the cybersecurity community, and I thought we could uh, end the show with a bunch of those, some really cool um, conversations I have with a lot of different people. We'll start with Josiah Dykstra. He's been on the show before. He is a senior fellow at the Office of Innovation over at the NSA. Yes, the NSA. Uh, Josiah's been on the show before with a book he wrote that was a really interesting collaboration between government, private sector, and um, education. Uh, we had a professor, uh, a private sector practitioner, and Josiah from the NSA jointly wrote a book. That's a that's a previous episode you can look up if you want to. Um, but I had some unique conversations with him, and I started asking uh, kind of what he saw as the relationship between government and private sector and, and where he thought that was headed and, and how he thought that should go. It is coming along. It is much better than it was a year ago, much better than it was five or ten years ago. That said, this is the beginning of a long road. Um, I'm doing some research right now to look at defense companies, and I want to know for those very tiny companies, what are their pain points and how can we help them? And so when we sent out a survey to them, they said, we're less than 20 people, we do less than half of our business for the government, and we want help. We can't afford it. We would love some free stuff. We'd love some free advice, some free training. And that's informative to us about how to reach 100,000 of those kinds of companies. We also talked about regulation and how to make regulatory requirements attainable. 
the interesting part of that is that, yes, they can choose to opt out of government business or not accept credit cards, but that doesn't mean they shouldn't be doing good security. It just means that they're not being forced to do it. And so how can we just provide it to them by default, turn automatic updates on, stuff that helps everybody, no matter if they do government business or not? Brent Dieterding's been on the show before, too. He's the CISO over at AFNI. And I asked him, what was the best part of RSA for you? So I have a great hot take because I've been in cyber for 23 years, and this is my first time at RSA. And uh, I was on the vendor side for 19, 20 years, right? So this would have been working at a conference, and I didn't really want to do that. Um, So this is attending a conference. And I'm part of a delegation with Delph Risk and Anthony Johnson, which is phenomenal. And I've been posting a lot on LinkedIn for a year. And so I meet all these people that I've never physically met, but I get to meet now. And it is so much fun. Um, it's, it's crazy because I, I hear people who know me from LinkedIn posts or topics or wherever they want to talk to me. Just a little bit ago, a guy came around and was like, can I get a selfie with you? And I was like... Yeah. Oh, okay. That's that's fine with me. Um, which is which is awesome, and it, it's very flattering, and it's fun to see this community to be able to sit down and talk to you, to me, um, you know, people that I've known, or find the weird connections. Like, oh, yeah, like I worked, I worked with him, and then he worked. Oh, man, oh, awesome. And so that is, uh, I, I'm a I'm a big fan of RSA. I met with Wendy Whitmore. She's the senior vice president at Unit Unit Forty Two over at Palo Alto Networks. And we talked about a variety of topics, incident response related, uh, modern trends in IR, whether you should insource it or outsource it, uh, when in your maturity curve should you get serious about IR? Let's listen to her for a moment on that subject. One thing I would start off with is probably not as much as change as you might think, right? In the form of the attacker techniques, right? We're seeing um, a lot of like what's old is new again in terms of techniques. Uh, I think you see though, a, a big amount of convergence between attacker data sets. So what might have clearly, you know, a few years ago been, oh, well, this is a TTB from a nation state actor now very much could be leveraged by a cyber criminal and nation state actors in some cases are using cyber criminal TTPs. Um, but what's the new hotness in everything is of course AI, uh, right? You can't have any conversation, certainly here at RSA, uh, you know, can't have any conversation without hearing about AI. Um, I think there will be a lot of great adva- advancements that we can make on the response side. But one of the more tactical concerns I personally have is how cyber criminals are going to use AI in the form of social engineering in particular, right, to really advance our techniques there. But the reality is, and you know, from you know, being a CISO in a variety of environments, uh, the level of maturity you're starting with is going to really govern the type of resources that you have available at hand, right? So, uh, you know, if you're starting from a very small team, I would really be looking to make sure I've got visibility as quickly as possible into the environment, right? Can I understand what my legitimate users are doing on a daily basis so that I can then build enough patterns to be able to detect what an attacker might do in that same environment, right? And, and then as you advance and certainly building up more capabilities to where you've got more resources, uh, looking at uh, increased visibility, being able to centralize that into ideally one pane of glass, pulling in different types of data sources. Uh, you know, I still uh, probably always will, I, or it'll take me a long time to convince me otherwise, I guess, that endpoint data isn't the most rich and contextual from an IR perspective, 
But that said, and one of the great things about being at Palo Alto Networks is like, we're able to pull in data from the network, from the cloud, like data sources that I didn't have at my disposal before, right? So from an investigator perspective, love to have that richness of data across the board. Being able to do that at scale in an automated capacity with one screen, th that's ideal. Kevin Brown, the CEO over at Init and I, talked about how to operationalize technology sprawl. Well, you know, it's interesting. So my background before uh, you know doing this is I, I, I worked a lot in in security, and uh, you know I was part of the vendor you know sort of crowd, you know making the different pieces that solve problems. And you can't there's nothing that solves you know every problem all at once. So you need many different you know Lego building blocks, if you will. Uh, and uh, and there's and there's more creative threats coming, so there's more solutions. So but it's a sprawl, right? And and you know you can think that hey, I bought the latest thing, I'm good, right? Uh, but uh, that's 20% of the game. You know, 80% of the game is how do you operationalize and put those into your business context. And so that has, uh, you know, uh, you know so sort of you need the right tools to do that. And so, like, I, I've uh, stayed close with uh, Attack IQ. I think they're amazing. And that they really speak to this problem uh, because, uh, you know, if you're the CISO and, you know, your boss asks you, hey, are we good? Like, how do you answer that? Well, I bought the latest thing from so-and-so. But you need, it's the process, it's the people, it's the culture, it's the alignment with the business. And, and that, that's where it's interesting for me because, you know, having been on the, the vendor side and building things, I have a patent in cryptography, right? I, I've done a bunch of interesting stuff. It's flying on warplanes and banks and, you know, so I've had to think about those problems a lot. But now I, I get to s still think about them because if something goes wrong, you know, it's a big problem. Uh, and so, you know, but I'm thinking from the business and, you know, the mission, and so, if, you know, we're, we're personalizing nutrition for millions of people, right? How do we make sure that we're building uh, systems that are resilient, that, you know, sort of meet all the regulatory aspects? Yeah, you got all of those to, to juggle. And so, you, 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 know, at, you know, most you know, executive teams don't have someone that's versed in this, and it's a huge blind spot. And so, so I'm very fortunate. Our CTO is amazing. And so, you know, for example, we, we do things that you wouldn't expect from a, you know, sort of a, you know, young tech company. Uh, you know, we're doing penetration testing with, you know, my Maryland and Virginia friends. Well, folks, I'm going to have one more segment to close the show out. But before we get to that, I just wanted to say I asked almost everybody I sat down with, how is your RSA going? What do you love most about RSA? And I got a lot of consistent feedback, which is why I didn't really feature those answers on the show. Um, I think the number one answer that came back was folks were just excited to be able to connect with humans again. Uh, it was most definitely a post-COVID RSA. Uh, it was in full effect. Lots and lots and lots of people descended upon San Francisco. I think it was a really good experience. I think a lot of folks got that connection they were looking for, that human connection where it's like, okay, Slack channels and video calls aren't enough. I want to I want to sit down and have a coffee or, or something with this person. So there was a lot of that. I think a lot of enthusiasm over some of the new trends in technology. Uh, there was definitely some talk about artificial intelligence being um, prevalent in good ways and bad with some of the vendors, you know, some of, some of them overusing it. But um, all in all, it was a really positive impression. All in all, people walked away very happy. Now, that all being said, the last segment for this show is going to be a deviation from that topic altogether, as well as from all the topics we've discussed so far. 
There is a public relations and communication services company called Tenfold Communications, and their CEO is a woman named Susan Thomas. And she and I met. Now, why would I meet with a PR person when I'm doing a podcast for um, RSA? And the answer is we didn't talk about marketing or PR uh, for companies. We talked about marketing for CISOs themselves. Why don't CISOs like to market themselves? Uh, How do... um, CISOs sort of advertise themselves. What is the value of having that personal brand, uh, and how do you start that personal brand? This is this is a topic that's very interesting to me as a as a CISO who's also a podcaster, uh, as a CISO who is very prevalent on LinkedIn, uh, as a CISO who, for better or worse, is known for his cowboy hat. Uh, whether whether that's a, a good part of the brand or not, I I, I still question. <laughs> But I tell you what, if I don't wear the hat, people ask after it. But let's not listen to me ramble on this subject. Let's listen to Susan Thomas talk about some of these uh, highlights on this theme, and she'll close out the show for us. You know, I think uh, they come, you know, most CISOs um, come from a conservative perspective. And they're not wanting to give away their trade secrets because they're thinking perhaps it's going to give the keys to the kingdom to the bad guys, which makes a lot of sense. Um, On the other hand, in this age of transparency where everybody is talking about everything and reassuring customers, it's really important to hear from, you know, a learned CISO that has a strategy, even if they're talking a broad vision about the things that they're thinking about. Because I can promise you that if you're not talking about your vision and strategy, your competitors are. Often that comes down to a personal choice and a company choice. I mean, you know, when you're working with a communications agency or an internal communications person, you need to understand what opportunities they're delivering, what's the purpose, what do they need from you. Obviously, you don't want to reveal everything you're doing. And so you need to understand in advance what the um, requirements are of this and how, how many details. Um, you know, you could speak at a, at a broad level about phishing or about, you know, any, anything, insider threats, whatever you want to talk about. But you obviously don't want to detail. So we have these 12 strategies specifically laid out. Uh, because that would give the bad guys the keys to the kingdom. It's really a tight wire uh, act for those that are trying to balance good publicity with their potential customers and their customer base and also keeping the keys to the kingdom safe. Because a lot of CISOs don't understand why they would even need to do anything like this. They have a great job. They've never had a trouble getting a great job. But I'd say think bigger. You know, what kind of boards do you want to be on? What kind of industry recognition would you like to have? Um, which may also lead to board opportunities. What kinds of conferences do you want to be involved with? What kind of seats in industry organizations would you like to influence? And so I think really talking, uh, thinking a little bigger and thinking about who needs to know you are all very, very important as you choose the opportunities you're going to participate in for your personal brand. And Alan, your, your credibility, your personal credibility helps create trust amongst others because people look are looking up to you. Yeah, well, first of all, it's starting to think about all the avenues that you can go down. Um, I think it's, you know, which publications do you want to be seen in? You know, there are some fantastic publications out there, and then there are some second, third tier that are kind of scraping up news. I'd really think about trying to, um, if you are a high-level CISO that's had some really important jobs, I think about saving yourself for the best opportunities. Same goes with conferences, panels, things like that, speaking opportunities. Definitely awards. There are some really fantastic awards out um, that people really covet. And then there are some just pure play, pays to play. Yeah, you want to be, be a little careful about that. Um, 
I think if you rec if somebody is presenting something you don't recognize, ask some confidants before you agree. Some great advice from Susan Thomas, a great way to end this two-part uh, series of RSA campsite chats, campfire chats, we should call them. Um, it was fantastic. Attack IQ, Sempras, thank you both so much for sponsoring this series of shows. I had a fantastic time interviewing folks, made some new friends, got some great answers to some questions, and uh, learned a lot myself. So with that all being said, thank you, listeners. Y'all be good now. <laughs>